Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Salve. Ciao. Buongiorno. Greetings and welcome to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. We are your hosts. I'm Ellen Nirenberg from Wesleyan University. And I'm Giancarlo Lombardi from the College of Staten Island and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I'm Nicoletta Marini-Maio from Dickinson College. Whether you're a colleague and expert in the field of Italian studies, or just curious about Italian history, culture, politics, and language, we are your podcast destination. The aim of the Italian Studies channel is to provide a broad spectrum of listeners access to exciting new research within the field of Italian studies. Italian studies is a fascinating interdisciplinary field that spans literary studies, cultural studies, cinema and television studies, theater and performance, the history of science, the history of art and music, among many, many other fields. That's right, Nico. Our conversations here are with scholars who have produced recent research across many and varied fields and topics. Ellen, Nicoletta, and I are scholars of modern and contemporary Italian studies, but our mission is to bring you the best of new scholarship in the field, from medieval literature to the most recent cinema and television. And the focus, approaches, and methods of study will differ And what we hope emerges from our conversations is an idea of the richness the field has to offer to many and different listeners. So welcome to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Grazie dell'ascolto. And thanks for listening. Welcome to the Italian Studies channel of the New Books Network. This is your host, Giancarlo Lombardi. Our guest today is Onya O'Healy, author of Migrant Anxieties, Italian Cinema in a Transnational Frame, which was just published by Indiana University Press. Onya O'Healy is Professor of Modern Languages and Literatures at Loyola Marymount University. Her research interests lie in transnational cinema, contemporary Italian film and migration studies. She has published widely in Italian screen studies and is editor with Aniko Imre and Katarzyna Marciniak of Transnational Feminism in Film and Media. With these two scholars, Anya also edits the Global Cinema Series for Paul Grave. Welcome to NBN, Anya. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Giancarlo. It's a pleasure to talk to you too. So uh, let's let's begin. In the introduction of your book, you say that your overarching aim, and I quote here, is to unravel some of the complex issues interwoven in representations of the immigrant or the foreigner in these cinematic texts, representations that symptomatize the shifting identifications and oppositions that have marked Italian society since the end of the Cold War. The films explored here raise questions related to Italy's historically fragile sense of nationhood, as well as its poorly acknowledged histories of colonial conquest and emigration. Now, I would like to begin by asking you to unpack for our listeners this important point of departure, maybe telling us a little bit about the organization of your book as well. Yes, well, the organization of my book is not 
entirely chronological, but it unpack it seeks to unpack uh, certain issues that have emerged in film in in films produced in Italy since the beginning of mass migration. Uh, first of all, from uh, Eastern Europe, Albania in particular, in particular, and then later from Africa. So um, these representations, as I have discovered, um, refer to uh, or, or resonate with issues that have long troubled um, Italian society, such as the North-South divide, the history of emigration from Italy, um, and of course, colonial memory, which is sporadically uh, acknowledged and often disavowed in terms of what actually transpired during Italy's colonial history in, in, uh, in Africa, as well as in uh, other parts of Europe. So um, I saw in these films uh, a wrestling with uh, the past, a wrestling with unacknowledged issues of Italian history, and an overlaying of um, some of the unspoken racializations that accompanied those memories and the projection of those onto uh, the figure of the foreigner in an Italian film. So that's what I tried to unpack, you know, what, what, what's resonating here with the history of Italian emigration. I mean, it's most obvious in the, in the sort of canonical film of Italian cinema about migration, which is the first uh, film by Amelia, Amelio on this issue, um, L'America. It's very clear there. And it's deliberate to the, the uh, references both to Italian colonial history and to um, Italian emigration. So what I try to show is uh, not only the sort of explicit intentionality of the, the filmmaker, as happens in this case, but also um, some of the unintended uh, issues that surface in representation, such as anxiety about Italian whiteness, anxiety about Italian subalternity vis-a-vis the rest of Europe, uh, the um, unresolved divisions between North and South and so on. Well, this is great. This is exactly where I wanted to go next, as a matter of fact. Uh, I wanted to work with your title. Uh, the very title of your work evokes the concept of anxiety, as you said, and you go at great length to keep this concept alive in the mind of your reader throughout the chapters of your book. How would you define such anxieties? And here the plural is fundamental. And how have they evolved in cinema produced in the last three decades? Yes, um, I must say that this title for my book is something that emerged very late in the project. And I was really fascinated when it emerged for me very clearly and all of a sudden that this is what the book is about. Um, and it's true, you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. It's anxieties of different kinds generated by different subjects about different um, acknowledged or unacknowledged issues. Um, and cinema lends itself very well to the expression of anxiety. I mean, it's been there forever in some, in some genres more than others, in, in horror, in film noir, in suspense mysteries, and so on. But my allusion to anxiety in the book's title has multiple associations, uh, mainly three, actually. 
the anxieties of Italians vis-a-vis mass immigration in general, and more specifically vis-a-vis the growing presence of people of non-Italian heritage in Italy today. Um, Second, of course, there's the anxiety of the migrants themselves, which are diegetically represented. Uh, Their worries about survival, about the hostility they they encounter, and of course, the lingering trauma of their, their trajectories, because some, before they get to Italy, have experienced unbelievable horrors in detention and and assault and and near drowning along the way. And these are conveyed pretty effectively in many films. But then more interestingly for me, there's another kind of anxiety, migrant anxiety, which is the type of anxiety that migrates and circulates between one context and another. Um, How there's a sort of transference, if you like, if you like to use a psychoanalytic term, say, of the legacy of colonial-era affect, of racism and fears about Italian subalternity. These are unacknowledged, mostly unacknowledged anxieties that uh, affect or, or, or attach themselves to, to new subjects of representation, but their origins are actually displaced from elsewhere. So you have the historical memory of Italian economic emigration, uh, which and and this um, economic emigration has become a reality again in the 21st century, as worried young Italians now go abroad again to make a living, at the very moment that young foreigners are continuing to pour into Italy to find work. So these anxieties migrate and morph, and they gain traction, and they sort of contaminate the scene of cohabitation, although they are not explicitly spelled out for what they are or what their origins are. I see. I see. It's actually, this ties into the following question I wanted to ask you, which is a question that is methodological in uh, in a way. Um, Still in your introduction, you mentioned your intention to look out for the ideological blind spots of a given film. This is how you call them. Elsewhere, echoing the fathers and even more so the mothers of deconstruction, you say that you strive to identify tensions and contradictions underpinning representations. I'm thinking here about, you know, the, 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 textual, the textual areas of discomfort that Barbara Johnson talked about. Citing actual dangers of realistic fiction. What is the process? How do you identify, how do you locate in these films the representation of the migrant condition that, as you say, resonates with the reproduction of the white national subject? And here, you know, feel free to like uh, draw examples from films and how you went about in your analysis. Mm-hmm. Um well, my methodology always starts with repeated viewing of every film that I might possibly imagine drawing into this uh, conversation. So my methodology is first and foremost a sort of painstaking engagement with the text um, because that's the way I was trained in film studies. You know, I sort of cut my teeth in, in, in film studies in the late 80s when engagement with the text was primary and um, looking for these gaps and elisions of, um, uh, within the text itself was, was what was um, encouraged at the time. So, um, 
and I also, uh, you know, have followed theorists such as uh, Robert Stamm and Ella Showat in their examination of uh, Western constructs of the other, and and what they they identify as the dangers of realistic fiction, um, because realism, above all forms of representation, hides its own strategies of enunciation, so it can easily seduce the viewer into imagining uh, that they have untrammeled access to the real. Um, So the danger that lies in this when we're looking at representations of non-Western subjects is that as viewers who have no other access to those realities, it's easy to imagine that this is... uh, you know, a mirroring of of the actual world, where of course it's not. It's mediated, as all films are. So um, that's that's the, my point of departure. That awareness, accompanied by the close reading um, process, uh, I pay attention to point of view, subjectivity, and other things that influence the the interface between. Um, between uh, the viewer and the text itself, um, the constructions of subjectivity, um, and so on. For example, I'm very attentive to the way non-Italian subjects are always marked as different within a film text, whether by their speech, their their skin color, their clothing, their posture, and so on. And and I focus on how this difference becomes the principal trait of their characterization and the ways they're framed, in which they're framed to accentuate this condition. Um, And then I also look at how identification and disidentification works because sometimes when identification is, is, is what the film encourages in the process, it erases all difference. And um, that too is ideologically, um, not it's a questionable move because it 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 really erases the um, the subjectivity of the other by subsuming the other into the self. Okay, uh, actually, it's really interesting how we are basically going to every from one question to the other. You're anticipating some of the questions that I'm about to ask you. As a matter of fact, um, so affect plays an important role in your close readings of many films. And let me say here, Onya, that it is such a pleasure to read your close readings. Your close readings are engrossing. One feels that you're actually watching the film. Um, and they're extremely useful, um, and they have a dual use, one for the scholar and one for the student. One can already see how um, so many parts of your books are so easily um, used, could be so easily used in the classroom. It's it's fantastic. Uh, your book is a lesson in style in many ways. Um, but to go back to affect, um, it is extremely important in your close reading, and it does so at many differing levels. At the same time, great attention, as you said, was was devoted to questions of focalization and identification. How do you see these three concepts, affect, focalization, identification, evolving or morphing in the films you analyze, in this corpus that starts from the films about Albania to the films, to the more recent films about um, African migrants? 
Well, yes, affect theory has uh, had a big influence on the way I, I watch films. Um, so uh, starting with the, the work of Sarah Ahmed and uh, Lauren Berlant, um, I've started to look at films uh, on the, or, or try to unpack films, what they say, in aspects that are non-linguistic. Um, and also in examining even the uh, reception of these films, I try to unpack the linguistic or the, 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 the written accounts of the films in terms of the unsaid, you know, the bodily uh, affective uh, economy that's playing out beneath what is said. And, and it's become very unpopular to talk about the unconscious because that harks back <laughs> to psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis, which is out of date. And I had a lot more psychoanalysis in my book uh, in the first draft, but um, I realized nobody <laughs> takes this seriously <laughs> anymore. So I had to take huge amounts of it out. But um, the intersection of psychoanalysis and affect theory is, is implicitly still there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of what Sarah Ahmed calls the affective economy rather than the ideas underlying Italy's reaction to its immigrants. Um, so affect theory takes the emphasis of language, of the rational, uh, and instead it sees power as uh, generating in the senses, in the body, um, in the more sort of animal side of, of, of human experience. Uh, entirely irrational, of course, but one cannot deny its existence and its force in in, in generating um, responses to to things like immigration. And how about questions of focalization and identification? I mean, in, in as you talk about focalization uh, in your book, you mention about the fact that a lot of times um, it's the the gaze shifts. Uh, in L'America, you have a really uh, captivating analysis about how the, sh the gaze shifts from one character to the other, and that carries a lot of consequence. Also, how does that affect identification? Um, and in the, in the final chapter of your book, you actually talk about the, the you know, identification, disidentification, misidentification. Uh, I know you already mentioned this earlier, but I would like for, for us to hear a little more about it. Well, the process of identification is uh, is actually pretty straightforward. There are characters within a film script that we are prompted to align ourselves with as viewers. Um, and uh, this is very clear in L'America, as, as you said. Um, you, when you first meet Michele, for example, who's then called Spiro, he's, uh, he's in an Albanian prison camp and he's filthy and uh, objectified as almost like an object rather than a subject. So the focus, the focalization in that scene would be the vi visitors from, Italian, from Italy who are looking at this abject creature of powerlessness and uh, and. Um, and ignorance, really. And then he becomes later on the, the focalizer. So we, we began to recognize his subjectivity. So focalization is also about subjectivity 
we are encouraged to enter into his point of view. And he, he then becomes sort of redeemed in his humanity and in his, um, in his distinctive uh, generosity as a human being. So um, it's, it's very cleverly um, orchestrated. But what we're really looking at here is the transformation of uh, this character from a, an abject alien into a, a, a sympathetic Southern Italian um, wise man who then becomes quite a, an exemplar of, of, of humane behavior because he's generous to those who are less fortunate than he is. And um, he makes these, uh, these pronouncements that are full of wisdom, even though he's a senile character. So you have this, this, this movement of, um, of, of identification or of um, uh, attachment to these figures as, as, as the people within the diegesis with whom we admire, whom the audience admires. So he's kind of set up as an exemplary Italian subject by the end of the film. And in, in his Italianness, he becomes human and a, you know, a, a, an exemplary subject. So um, that's how it works there. But in the process, the ideological pitfalls of that is that the um, Albanians are never given that same possibility within the film. They remain blank screens. They remain um, unknowable, uh, inarticulate, unreachable. So, um, you know, at the expense of its... It, Michele, when he becomes Italian within the Diet Jesus, when he's recognized, he starts to evolve as a human being. But the other uh, remain, the others remain what they were, which is blank screens. So that's what I talk about when I talk about the pitfalls, this, this elevation of the Southern Italian in a story that's set in another country, but it's really about Italy. And it's the erasure of the reality of the other, the diversity of the other, that one sees over and over in Italian film. When you have identification with a character that may seem other at first, what the film is doing is turning them into one of us, so to speak. That's what the... So the erasure, uh, this erasure is also uh, seen into the scene as parallel to the whole idea of passing um, that is so central to many of the, of the readings that you do. Um, how do you see that uh, evolving through in the corpus of, of the films you analyze? Yes. Well, that's fascinating that you say that because I hadn't thought of, um, of that script or of that way of, of reading the narratives. Can you tell me what you mean? I, I'm not entirely sure. Well, I mean, you're certainly starting. You know, you're starting from the Albanian. Uh, if we look at uh, if we look at the the chapters that you have, the chapter breakdown, uh, the first two chapters are about Albania and then Eastern Europe, and then you move to Africa, and and so much of the first two chapters has got to do with bodies that are um, unmarked at some levels. Uh, there, you know, it's almost the stessa faccia, stessa razza kind of thing going and then when it comes to africa that is no longer a possibility um but at the same point you know you bring up in chapter two the question of affect when you're talking about the badante 
And at the same time, when you're talking about the Eastern European prostitute, you have the affective disposability of the final migrant. Uh, and, and, and you make a very important uh, statement about um, you know, what happens to prostitution, um, not just in cinema, but in reality, once migration starts. And where does the, the eternal image, the, the classical image of the Italian streetwalker that was so famous, in, was made famous by you know, directors like Fellini, for instance, where does she disappear? Right. She disappears from Italian screens. And we have instead uh, streetwalkers of, of first of Eastern European origin and then a different type of streetwalker from Africa. There are two different categories in these films. They're very the representation of them is very different. But to get back to what you were mentioning about passing, um, I think you're referring here to what I call uh, the discourses of whiteness and the um, the uh, ability of white Eastern European um, migrants to become invisible, their difference to become invisible in Italian public places. Um, so they make a sub, they, they can become a substitute for the Italian female body in, in particular sectors of the economy, such as prostitution and, um, and home care or uh, elder care, you know, the badante. The badante, the Eastern European badante can be, uh, can be uh, absorbed into the family context because she's not visibly uh, marked as different um, and that was a practice it's 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 changing now there in real life there are more and more Filipinas and Sri Lankans who occupy this position but for a long time it was it was Eastern European women were considered ideal for this um, this position because they kind of passed in a way that Italians found acceptable but in the films, this um, passing is always questioned uh, in terms of vis- in terms of the visual representation. The the um, non-European uh, white characters are always uh, marked with some visible difference that is not um, startling, but it's always there, whether it's in clothing or posture or. Uh, screen time or casting or whatever, it's always there. Um, and it's fascinating to me how, how this, these different levels of whiteness are determined. And uh, in this respect, I'm very interested in, in, in new work on, on what Italian whiteness is, uh, particularly Gaia Giuliani, who writes about um, the construction of Mediterranean whiteness in Italy, which is different from Aryan whiteness. Um, and um, I, I, I'm interested in, in looking at how this plays out in the films, although I don't discuss, I don't think I discuss Mediterranean whiteness in any great detail. But it's one of the things that I'm interested in when I look at these representations of Eastern Europe. And I see it in all of the films that are set in the Balkans that were made in the, in the 1990s. And even more recently, in a film like Venuto al Mondo um, by Castellito, where you have the whole question of genetic um, identity, you know, how can a child who's actually not Italian at all pa- be, you know, pass as uh, Italian in, in contemporary society? 
uh, I, that film has been widely criticized and uh, because of its aesthetics, but I find it fascinating in terms of the ways in which it addresses these very issues. Let's move to questions uh, that are somewhat uh, more philosophical in kind. Um, the work of Jacques Derrida and Emmanuel Levinas is prominent in your study of migrant cinema. Uh, how is the ethics of hospitality so perfectly encapsulated by the work of these two philosophers portrayed in the Italian films you analyze? Yes, I do uh, uh, draw on Levinas and, and, and uh, Derrida to some extent in... Uh, discussing the concept of hospitality. But I find that their um, insights are often undercut in the way that hospitality is actually represented in Italian film. I mean, I'm, I was very drawn to Levinas at first because of his idea of, you know, the, the, the face of the other. I liked his idea of ethics preceding met metaphysics, in other words, that our primal responsibility, or ethics preceding ontology even, and of our primary responsibility to the needs of the other. All of this is very idealistic. Um, but I also like the notion that the other is always separate from the self, always in some way inscrutable, and that separateness is what has to be respected. Um, that that uh, otherness itself is what have, has to be respected. However, in Italian films' configuration of uh, hospitality, um, what they do, what the films do, is deny this difference by turning the other into the self-same, you know, the, in the way that Irigaray uh, critiques um, the uh, patriarchal configuration of, of femininity. You know, you Basically, you say they're just like us, therefore um, they shouldn't be discriminated against. But what what I'm what what Levinas is actually saying is that their very diversity is what needs to be respected. Um, so I, in the end, even though I read quite a bit of Levinas and Derrida's idea ideas of hospitality, what I saw was the contradiction of that. Because in the way that difference is subsumed into sympathy uh, and uh, humanitarian rescue in many Italian films actually erases the otherness of the other. What do you think uh, movies like Mediterranea or um, Fuoco Mare have done in this respect? I mean, I'm, I would like to, to really go and, and talk about, you know, films that our listeners might have actually heard about because they're both being distributed heavily in the United States. Um, well, I'm glad to hear that they have been distributed heavily in the United States. I hadn't been aware. They were available they on were Netflix, available. I believe, both of them. Yes. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yes, yes. Foco Amare certainly uh, left a trace and many people I've talked to have actually seen seen it or part of it. Uh, many people have found it difficult to watch all of it because it is not um, a cheerful film by any means. But um, I have mixed, as, as you probably know from having read my, my discussion of, 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 of that film, I have mixed reactions to it um, because of the uh, preponderance of uh, village life as the main storyline. 
and um, which is interesting. I mean, aesthetically, uh, Rosie's project is 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 brilliant. He he does uh, he makes fascinating cinema from the point of view of anthropology and and uh, documentary aesthetics. It's it's really quite beautiful. Um, but in the depiction of the migrants, there are so many contradictions that um, it leaves me feeling very uncomfortable. Um, hospitality, I would see uh, reflected in the um, humanitarian mission of the, the doctor, the good doctor Bartolo, who um, tends to the um, injured migrants and um, has a reasonable amount of screen time and it's gives a very moving um, account of the effects of his uh, experience looking after the, um, these uh, unfortunate individuals who are carried aboard and needing care. Um, all of this is very beautiful. But again, for me, in the larger picture, it ties in to the idea of the Italian rescuer and it ties into the idea of Italian humanism. Uh, humanitarianism saving the day with an almost complete disregard for the growing militarization of the Mediterranean, um, the enforcement of by military power of the, of the division between uh, the South, the global South and the global North. And I mean, these, these are, these are procedures that have terrible consequences uh, for millions of people around the world, but to focus on a single act of hospitality or a single act of humanitarianism seems almost perverse in the larger picture. Although it's a beautiful film, I, I do not deny that. So, uh, Mediterranea, on the other hand, is a very different film. Um, Carpignano actually goes to Africa to uh, shoot the... Uh, the longer trajectory of the um, of the migrants after leaving home and and the, as they proceed through the desert, um, very few films do that. There's maybe two others I can think of that actually go to Africa. So, although films about migrants in in general um, give you a limited picture of of who comes to Italy from the African continent, only those that actually bring you to Africa. Um, are very helpful about uh, identifying who these people are and what kinds of journeys they have to endure to get to the um, Mediterranean and beyond. Now, one of the things I liked about Mediterranea is um, the inclusion of uh, digital media, the um, acknowledgement of the uh, technological expertise of these people who make these long journeys. I mean, they're... they're um, Many of them are well-educated. They speak multiple languages. Um, they're wired. They know how to use the internet per perfectly for their needs. Um, and, and there are no other films apart from this one that really give you that kind of picture of migrant subjectivity as informed, as resourceful, um, as totally modernized, completely up-to-date in terms of uh, the technologies that need to be um, deployed to get from A to B. We, do, we don't see that in any other films. And then we have, of course, the whole 
conflagration at Rosarno, which is something that all Italians will remember because it was so widely televised at the time, the riot, so-called riot of Rosarno, and the the um, the transformation of this protagonist who uh, was a reasonable and 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 totally likable person into this violent uh, participant in the riots. And you understand, finally, the, the kinds of conditions that led to uh, the rebellion on the part of the migrants in, in Rosarno, that this was not an irrational moment of violence. It was something uh, clearly uh, um, prompted by actual social conditions uh, that needed to be recognized and made public. Now, for you know, a movie like Fogamare that was so uh, heavily circulated, or even a movie like uh, Mediterranean that had discrete circulation, there are so many others that instead have completely disappeared. So, in your formidable revisitation of a cinematic repertoire made of films that one could occasionally define as belli e introvabili. As uh, which is the name that Chuck used to give for an award for films that disappeared because of the difficulty in accessing many of them, you have done the impossible, offering probing and nuanced textual analysis while occupying the role of storyteller. Your discussion of these films is so captivating and thorough that your reader truly feels at the movie theater. Do you think that the role of the critic is also that of archivist or better of preserver of stories? What is the relationship in your view between criticism and storytelling? Well, this is a sort of sensitive issue for me because uh, as you probably know, um, telling the plot or telling a story about a film is so unpopular these days um, and is uh, considered very passé. But at the same time, I was looking at films that I realized that most of my readers would never have seen and will never see in the future um, because I had to go to great lengths to find most of them. So I was faced with the choice. Either I could speak very abstractly about these films um, or I could try to fill in some of the narrative context um, that was relevant to my overall uh, appraisal of the importance of this film in terms of my overarching concerns. So I I, I resorted to some storytelling, but um, with misgivings. Um, But, you know, what inspired me was when I first started doing film studies, um, People like uh, Teresa de Laurentiis were writing about um, independent cinema and experimental cinema, and films that were very, very hard to to get hold of. And this was long before you know CDs, online stuff. And and I was always so grateful that there was some descriptive element because I could then understand the analysis once I was able to visualize the uh, the narrative context. So I took my lead from from these early models in my own film education uh, and allowed myself to tell uh, the stories. Uh, now, my storytelling of a film, however, would be, of course be different from somebody else's. So I, I tried to restrain myself in making too many assumptions. But I do think that there is a place for storytelling in film criticism and in film analysis, because I don't consider myself a film critic. I consider myself a film analyst. 
because my overall aim is not to appraise the aesthetic value of film, but rather to uh, to focus on other concerns that are more interesting to me. But isn't there also an element of film historian uh, in, in what you're doing? Yes, absolutely. There There is, because you create not exactly a canon, but you, you create by, by, by making reference to particular films, you make these films visible again in a certain way. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very aware of that. And I hope that, you know, having written about films that are very difficult to find will in the future prompt further interest in those films that are difficult to find and, and, and make them more accessible. Well, you know, it's works like yours, Onya, that allow us to go back and actually look for these films and sometimes maybe prompt uh, the re-release of certain films. You know, if there's enough demand, if there's enough critical demand. I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, you talk about, you have a, a, a section on Suicide Story by Roberta Torre, which, is, which only was only released on VHS. Yet is a really important film for what it does. It engages with genre in a way that is extremely innovative, uh, but it doesn't do what Tano da Morire had done a, a few years earlier. And so while Tano da Morire remains available, everybody has forgotten about Suicide Story. But, you know, here comes your book and it's there and it's there to stay. And it's actually inscribed in a genealogy that really enriches its content and its treatment of, of, of the issues you're talking about. Yes, I, I agree. I think it's, it's important to give space to these, uh, discursive space, to these otherwise disappeared films, these uh, lost Absolutely. Gems. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, Donald Trump was elected on the promise of building a wall with Mexico. Former Italian Secretary of Interiors Matteo Salvini talked about building a wall on the northeast border with Slovenia. The discussion of borders and borderscapes plays a central role in the last few chapters of your book. Do you think your study on migration in Italian cinema speaks to a wider audience and to global concerns when discussing borderscapes? And if so, how? Well, that's a big question. Um, I hope that my book speaks to wider global issues whether or not that will have any effect is impossible to tell. But um, one of the things I learned a lot about in the process of writing uh, the book was how borders work, how they're constructed, not only on the ground, but also in the imagination, the effects that discursive accounts of the border can have uh, in, in making borders more entrenched or more porous and so on. Um, and while I was writing the last chapters, I was very aware of parallels between the Mediterranean border and the U.S. border with Mexico. Um, those two phenomena were happening in tandem, but there wasn't much uh, discourse, you know, relating the one to the other. But certainly the, the, the increasing militarization and um, um, policing of the border between the north and south of the world and particularly the criminalization of northbound movement from the south of the world was something that struck me very forcibly in both cases. Um, so this, this focus on borders is not just something that's happening in Italian cinema, it's happening elsewhere as well. Um, 
there's of course this Ai Weiwei's book on I mean film or or uh, installation or video on um, on refugees more generally in different parts of the world that does a brilliant job of of uh, of bringing the issue of borders and border crossing into view and there are many films from Germany France Sweden and Greece for example that also um, focus on the border in our contemporary world. Um, and, and films like um, Petzold's uh, Transit last year, that even though it sets the, the narrative in an earlier time, is really about the way borders function in our present presence and the way that borders racialize and, 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 and divide um, uh, north and south of the world. So um, I, I, that's something that I didn't predict when I began writing this book, is that I would uh, end up um, researching borders in particular beyond the scope of the book. It's just a, a topic that I'm now um, completely immersed in. So this brings us to questions of, of discipline boundaries, uh, disciplinary boundaries and, and, and audience. Um, how does your book uh, fit right now in the scholarship on Italian cinema, but also uh, in a wider uh, understanding of film studies. And, you know, you talk about the importance of discourses of nation, uh, while also placing a lot of emphasis on the importance of transnational concerns and approaches in your book. Um, who is your audience? And, and also, where do you go next? Well, there are a lot of questions in that question, Giancarlo. I'm not sure where to start. Um, Anywhere you feel comfortable. Well, the last thing you said was, where am I going next? So that's what I'll answer first. Um, I am currently starting a new project on transgender, transborder, because oh, beautiful. I'm very interested in um, discourses of passing, transiting, Morphing, morphing, and so on—you uh, know, narratives of transformation—and and and also the different perspectives and experiences Im- implicated in the crossing of all international borders. Uh, but in the case of transgender subjects, this is rendered even more fraught, even more fascinating. So I don't know if this project will evolve into a book or not. But for the moment, I'm finishing my first article on on this topic, which which has fascinated me um, and which which resonates in other films uh, made in Europe, which I may actually, if I do write a book, will include films made outside Italy as well. Yeah. So what else was in your... So question? what else? Let's talk about your audience. Who is your audience okay. and where does your book fit in terms of discipline, in, t- in terms of disciplinary boundaries? Okay, disciplinary boundaries, that's easy. Um, I would say cultural studies, uh, Italian cultural studies as the specific subfield is where I am. Um, my, my res- initially, it started out as simply as a film studies project, but it really became a cultural studies project. The research for my book um, in, you know, brought me to all kinds of readings, um, and I've always been an omnivorous reader. So my sources were drawn from fields as distant as psychoanalysis and migration studies, anthropology and political analysis. And not all of these interdisciplinary explorations have left visible marks on the completed book. 
In fact, some have been suppressed, such as psychoanalysis. <laughs> but um, all of these fields have enriched my approach, and I wouldn't have been able to bring them together if it hadn't been for the model of cultural studies, which allows very wide interdisciplinary um, explorations. Um, so that's that's the field that I would say that my my uh, book uh, connects with. And the other question: Who is my reader? Yes. Um, so uh, you know, there's a real conundrum here because for many of us academics writing today, um, when academic publication is changing shape and the opportunities for publishing densely theoretical work, especially in film studies, are scarcer than in the recent past. Um, nowadays, academic publishing houses that still bring out books in print are wary of investing in hard copy that won't be bought by people other than librarians. So, as you know, when you submit a book proposal today to a university press, you have to argue for its market appeal. Yeah. And while making these arguments, I had to think about who is my book addressing. Um, publishers prefer books that have the potential of being bought by students rather than by libraries and experts in the field for obvious reasons. So, um, in 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 creating my initial book proposal, I had to figure out who the book is addressed to. I wanted it to be accessible both to students and specialists, but at the same time, since the issues that I was, I'm addressing are quite complex, I didn't want to oversimplify my approach. So I found the balance a delicate one. And at the editing stage, I eliminated whole paragraphs, whole pages of theoretical explication, uh, as I said, particularly psychoanalytical uh, um, material. And I, I sometimes wonder if I went too far in trying to make the text accessible to a broad range of readers, but I hope at least that some will find some benefit in it. I have no doubt they will. Uh, and on this note, uh, Onya, I would like to thank you for a really great discussion of of your book, which I am sure will live a long life. Uh, it's a great contribution um, to the to film studies, and it's been an honor to talk to you about this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So thanks a lot for listening to this installment of the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Please come back to check out our other podcasts on topics like art history, Italian cinema, medieval literature, television studies... And even more than that, history of thought, contemporary women's writing, gender studies, codicology. As well as politics and religion in Italy, opera, queer theory, Jewish studies, Dante, Machiavelli, you get the idea. We are your Italian studies hosts. Giancarlo Lombardi. Nicoletta Marinimaio. And Ellen Nirenberg. All comments and questions can be addressed to itst at gmail.com. E grazie dell'ascolto. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next time.